If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is where we will be this morning. We've got a lot to cover, verse 13 down through 52, and not a whole lot of time to do it, so we'll try to fly. But I want to start you, and you don't have to turn there, but in, in Habakkuk, funny place to start. Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet, and he was looking around within Israel, amongst his own people, unrighteousness, sin, rebellion against the Lord. And he opens in Habakkuk chapter 1, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Again, he's looking out amongst his own people. There's, there's violence among his own people. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk's in a bad spot. He sees all of this rebellion around him amongst his own people, and he's crying out, how long, God, before you're going to do anything? God says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. God says, Habakkuk, I see what's going on, and I'm doing something that if someone were to tell you, you wouldn't believe it. In fact, what it was, was he was going to raise up the Babylonians to bring judgment on God's people. And Habakkuk will go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that we are unrighteous, but we're not as unrighteous as the Babylonians are. You're going to use them to bring judgment upon us? I don't understand. I don't get it. Those verses will come back to us here in a bit. In Acts 13, verse 13, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had been on the island of Cyprus as we looked at last week, and now they leave Cyprus, they head north up into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Verse 13, now Saul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that maybe in a few weeks. Why did John Mark leave? We're not sure. But it will come up in the story again. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Um... That's great. We're dripping this morning. Something's going on. It was dripping up here, and now it just dripped on my Bible. This will be fun. Make sure it doesn't drip on my balding head. All right? Um, Paul's uh, strategy to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so on these missionary journeys, whenever there was a Jewish synagogue, that's where he would go. People who were steeped in the Old Testament law and prophets and the promise of a Messiah. And so in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, there's another one, brethren, how about that? If you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul is given an opportunity. He's probably seen as a traveling itinerant teacher. 
Maybe they had introduced themselves, and he, of course, was a trained rabbi. But they gave him opportunity to speak. Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Paul's about to recount a bit of Old Testament history. And it's a run-up, if you will, to the focus of his sermon, which will undoubtedly be Jesus. But in this brief overview of Old Testament history, I want you to notice that God is the one who's always acting. And he's always acting, if you will, in grace for his people. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. So just in verse 17, he chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He chose our fathers. He created our nation. And he made the people great during the time, during their stay in the land of Egypt. That's in the book of Exodus when they were in Egypt for some 400 years. And during that time, God fulfilling his promise to make them as the sand of the seashore. They were multiplying and growing and becoming great. And God's the one who did it. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. That too is the book of Exodus when they were under bondage in Egypt, cried out to God. He raised up Moses and through Moses led the people out of Egypt. For a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers. As they had sent in the spies, and the spies came back and said, God has brought us into the wilderness to die. And yet Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can do it. God has promised us the land. It's ours. But the people believed the report of the ten. And because of it, God said, you're going to wander for 40 years. And the old generation will die. And so in verse 18, God put up with them in the wilderness. Their grumbling, their unbelief. Verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, that's the book of Joshua. Under Joshua's leadership, they crossed the Jordan River into the land and defeated the Canaanites. He distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And indeed, that's the latter part of the book of Joshua. Having defeated the Canaanites, the land was distributed amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. God gave them the land just as he promised. Verse 20, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. That's the book of Judges. As the nation would turn to sin, and a foreign nation would come against them and give them trouble, and they would cry out to God eventually, and God would raise up a judge and bring them deliverance time and time again in the midst of their rebellion. But indeed, he gave them judges until the time Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. That's the book of of 1 Samuel. We want a king like all the other nations, and God giving them Saul. After God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. God chose, God made great, God let out, he put up with, he destroyed, he distributed, he gave judges, he gave Saul, he raised up David. 
Over and over and over again, Paul is recounting, as they have just read from the Law and the Prophets, Paul is recounting God's faithfulness to the people through the Law and the Prophets, his acts towards them. He ends this survey, if you will, with David. And he's going to use a few phrases in verse 23, according to promise. And down in verse 32, of the promise made to the fathers, probably he has in mind the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that from him, from David, one of his descendants will come as the Messiah King of the nation. And so in verse 23, having shown them God's past grace, He now shows them his present grace and the fulfillment of promise. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, from David, again, in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. That that verb brought is just another verb in this list of verbs. God chose, made great, led out, put up with, destroyed, distributed, gave, gave, raised up Saul, and brought a Savior to Israel. It's a, continual, it's a continuing of God's grace towards the people. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had, pro, had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. That's John the Baptist and his preparation of the coming of Jesus. Verse 26. Brethren. So it's like he's he's now gathering his thoughts. He's looked into the past of all that God did for Israel, and now in the present, God has brought to them a Savior. Now, brethren, he gathers his thoughts, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God. So the sons of Abraham's family, those are the Jewish people that are there in the synagogue. Those among you who fear God, those are Gentiles who also are in the synagogue because they've come to at least be attracted to Israel's God and to Judaism. And so it's a Jewish audience with some some Gentiles who fear God as well. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. In verse 23, he had said, God has brought a Savior Now he says the message of this salvation has been sent. And here's how this salvation has been accomplished. Verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. They didn't understand what they were doing. They had no crime. 
against him, and yet they killed him. And they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Most of you, this is old news. Some of you, maybe it's been a long time since you've heard it. This is how this salvation was accomplished. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God brought to them a Savior. And according to the utterances of the prophets and all that was written concerning him in the fulfillment of all of these expectation and anticipation which they didn't always see, Jesus Christ died upon the cross and then God raised him from the dead. We're 13 chapters into this book. It's 28 chapters long. It is the message throughout the book. God has sent a son, his son. He was crucified in our place and for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. Verse 32. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Probably that's a reference back up to verse 23. According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. There was the anticipation among the people of Israel that God was going to send a son of David, a Messiah King. And Paul says, we're preaching this good news. This is him. He's been given. God Brought to Israel a Savior. He was executed, yet God raised him from the dead. He's the one, verse 33, that God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, as I understand it, was a psalm that was used whenever a king within Israel was, was enthroned. And it would be pronounced over them on their enthronement. Today I have begotten you that the king within Israel on the day of his enthronement would in a sense take on a, a special relationship to Yahweh. A father-son type of relationship. Of course that psalm anticipated the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament kings of Israel. And in particular, the son of David who would come. And Paul seems to understand, as did Peter way back in chapter 2 and 3, that when Jesus Christ came and died upon the cross and then God raised him from the dead and then exalted him, he ascended into heaven and sat down at his father's right hand. That was his enthronement. He is God's 
promised king. You are my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is the promised one and God has enthroned him. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. I think what this means is this. Isaiah 55, a promise of of the blessings that would come to God's people in future days under Messiah. Paul understands those future days have now begun and that these holy and sure blessings of the Davidic king are now available to you. Because he's come, died, risen, and been exalted and enthroned, now these sure and holy blessings are available, and he's going to specify what those are in just a bit. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So we're moving fast. The Jewish synagogue, some God-fearers, they're reading the law and the prophets. Y'all have anything to say? And Paul stands up and says, God did this, and he 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 did this this too. He brought to Israel a Savior. And we're announcing to you this salvation. This Jesus died. He was executed. But God raised him from the dead. He's the Messiah King enthroned. The blessings are available for all. Therefore, verse 38. We'll start slowing down, but we can't. So we'll keep going fast. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which he could not be freed through the law of Moses. Wow. This is the same message Peter preached earlier in the book. Tying the work of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the availability now of the forgiveness of sins and right relationship with God. Forgiveness. And in verse 39, literally, and through him everyone who believes is justified from all things, from which he could not be justified through the law of Moses. Friends, this is old hat to so many of us that it just in one ear and out the other, but this is awesome. Because the reality is every one of us have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've been around, you've heard me say it before. Our two great needs before we came to faith in Jesus, and so if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you have two great needs. 
On the one hand, you need your sins to be forgiven. And on the other hand, you need a righteousness that you do not have in and of yourself. What you need is someone who will live a righteous life for you and then take the, their account and impute it to you as if you lived it. So you need forgiveness, the washing away of your sins. But if you will, that, that kind of leaves you as a blank slate. What you also need is, is a righteousness imputed to you. And lo and behold, what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And the justification from all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Justification is a fancy word that means the declaration of righteousness. You and I must be righteous, but we're not. We're sinners. And so we need those sins forgiven, and then we need a righteousness to be imputed to us so that God can count us, declare us to be righteous, even though in and of ourselves we're not. Folks, that is the good news. Because as Paul makes his point, you couldn't do it through your own efforts. You can't do it through the law of Moses or through any other system of earning God's favor through your own accomplishments. Got to keep moving. Therefore, take heed. So that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Now here Paul is going to quote from Habakkuk chapter 1. He's going to quote from the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And so there, there were a bit of different ways to take these Hebrew words. Here's how Paul thought they were meant to be understood. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. Probably the idea is, behold, you scoffers, and marvel lest you perish. For I am proclaiming a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Just as Habakkuk, Paul, or God saying to Habakkuk, listen, I'm, I am doing something. And you may not recognize it, you may not understand it, but I'm at work. Now, in the midst of what God was doing, what was Habakkuk's response supposed to be? Israel is sinning. Habakkuk hates that. He's longing for God to do something about the rebellion amongst his people. God says, oh, I'm, I am about to do something, and you wouldn't believe it if I told you. In fact, I'll tell you, I'm raising up the Babylonians, the wicked, unrighteous Babylonians, to bring judgment upon my people. How's Habakkuk supposed to respond to that? Scoff? Unbelief? No way, God, you can't do it. 
that's not the way you're supposed to accomplish your purposes. Obviously not. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it's the most famous verse, in, maybe not the most famous, it's the most off-quoted verse in the New Testament from the book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Even though you cannot figure out and you cannot fathom what it is that I'm doing to bring about my purposes in the world, the proper response is not to scoff at God. The proper response is to have faith. Paul is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience, telling them what God has done to bring about salvation for his people the forgiveness of sins and a righteousness with the, which they don't have in and of themselves. And he warns them, don't scoff. What was Israel's expectation? Messiah was going to come, defeat their enemies, establish his kingdom, and all would be well for them. They had missed it. Messiah was going to come, but then he was going to be crucified for the sins of his people. And God was going to raise him from the dead and exalt him to a place of power, to a place of enthronement, and that through him he was going to offer the forgiveness of sins and righteousness, and we'll see, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was going to accomplish salvation for his people in ways they did not understand, but the response was not scoff. The response was in verse 39, who, everyone who believes. In verse 40, it's a warning. 40 and 41. Take heed. Verse 41, lest you perish. Now, the first response to this in verse 42, 43, and 44 is positive. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sunday. For the next Sabbath. So there's some positive. You got some people begging. It's what happens every Sunday when I get done preaching. Right? Oh, please, more. No, they're, they're, hey, they're begging. I heard you, Steve. I think it was Steve. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Probably the idea there is that some of them had actually, in fact, believed in Jesus and experienced his grace, the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of righteousness and the, the Holy Spirit. They had believed in Paul, and they were following after Paul and Barnabas, and, and they were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Wow. But, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Saying, probably, demeaning things about Jesus. Paul was one of these, right? Deuteronomy 23 had pronounced a curse upon anyone who hung upon a tree. And so the idea that the Jewish Messiah was crucified, hung upon a tree, meant that he was cursed by God. And Paul came to understand, indeed, he was cursed by God, but 
in a significantly different way than anybody imagined, not because he deserved the curse himself, but because he became a curse for us. He would say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, and I think elsewhere, what, what is Jesus to the Jews? He's a stumbling block. They don't get it. They stumble over it. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God to be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul's strategy always seemed to be whenever there was a Jewish audience to go to them and talk with them and plead with them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God and in him is found forgiveness and reconciliation, life. And then when they would reject him, he would then turn more his attention towards the Gentiles in any one location. In verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This was good news to them. That this gospel was for them as well. And they began glorifying or praising the word of the Lord. Glorifying it, thinking well of it, accepting it for what it really is. Not the word of men, but the word of God, Paul would say elsewhere. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That is a powerful sentence with no time to spend on it this morning. It is the strongest statement, though, in the entire book of Acts of the absolute sovereignty of God and the salvation of his people. God is sovereign in eternal life. The word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. So this even small group of believers here in Pisidia, Antioch, began to spread the gospel around what one scholar tells us is 50 surrounding villages. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. To shake the, shake the dust off, they were simply obeying Jesus in Matthew 10 when he sent out his disciples, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off of your feet. It was the idea that you are culpable before God. We have told you. You have rejected it. You now stand culpable before God. It's time to go, but I think here's maybe the point. I don't know. It was hard for me to go, what exactly is, does God want for us to get from here? But I think maybe this is one of them. Response has ramifications. Response has ramifications. And for so many of us in this room, by the grace of God, we, we responded positively to the gospel some time ago. Maybe years ago, decades ago, maybe last month. 
wonderful. That response of believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus according to the word of God, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to you such that God declares you to be righteous before him. You are loved by him. You are accepted by him. And it has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with the performance of Jesus. And he always does right. And so the idea of good day, bad day Christianity, if I have a good day, God's pleased with me. If I have a bad day, he's not pleased with me. That's out the window. Whenever we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, all of our sins are forgiven and his righteousness is imputed to us and we stand in grace. He loves us. He accepts us. He will never let us go. He gives us the Holy Spirit. That's implied by verse 52, but it's very clear elsewhere in the book that another one of the gifts of believing in him, one of the ramifications of believing in him is the very presence of God through his spirit. The other ramification for those who don't believe, verse 41, behold, scoffers, lest you perish. Don't respond as they did in verse 45 and 46. In 45. They scoffed at the idea that salvation was to be found in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection for them. They scoffed at it. They couldn't believe it. That that's the way God would bring about his purposes in the world. And so, no. And as they did, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet. Friends, there is forgiveness of sins and the gift of righteousness nowhere else to be found. If you scoff at God's purposes through Jesus, where else are you going to go? He is God's appointed son. He's the one who died upon a cross in your place and for your sins. He's the one whom God raised from the dead. He's the one who's alive right now. He's the one through him, verse 38. Through him, verse 39. It's in him that forgiveness and righteousness is found. Take heed. Where else will you go? Let's pray. Father in heaven, maybe there are some here today who've never responded positively or negatively, and in, in doing so, it's, it's, a, it's a negative, it's a, it's a passive God, would you work, so work right now in their hearts. 
to show them Jesus, your son. That he is the means, the wonderful way to find the forgiveness, to find righteousness, to receive the Holy Spirit of God, your very presence to come into our lives and to begin to change us and make us new. And Lord, I guess for, the, for those of us who belong to you, just down here in verse 42 and 43 and 44, just this, this positive inclination to the word of God, may that always be true of us. To hear the word of God, to believe it, to trust it, and to obey it. Lord, as we dismiss and scatter, we pray your good hand upon us. Go with us. And as Steve and Terry talked about, may the light of Jesus shine through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for the few extra minutes. May God bless you. You are sent to joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same.